Welcome to another episode of Love and War, the podcast in which the irresistible force overcomes the immovable object. I'm your host, Lee Ballinger. I'm an author, poet, and producer based in Los Angeles. If you want to know more, check out my bio on Facebook, L-E-E-B-A-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. You can hit me up at rockrap at AOL.com. R-O-C-K-R-A-P, or on Facebook. Every year on the last Saturday of September, there is an international celebration staged by 100,000 poets and musicians for change. Over 1,000 events in 100-plus countries, all under the banner of peace and sustainability. Each year I host a radio show as part of those festivities at the L.A. radio studio on the edge of the Los Angeles Harbor. As always... There were plenty of poets and musicians on hand to perform and be interviewed, but there were also studio owners, hip-hop festival organizers, heavy metal authors, skid row painters, culinary masters, and much more. Here's a sample of what went down from Gordon Allen, a poet and heavy metal musician who was very active in solidarity with the homeless in Orange County. You know... When I was a child, I wanted to be a hero. But not just any hero, I wanted to be a superhero. And not just any superhero, I wanted to be Superman. I wanted to look across the land, ocean, and sky and know that my people would be safe. See, when you're that age, my people equals the human race. And as we grow and our innocence escapes, the world hammers and shapes our views are skewed. We win, we lose. What's the right thing to do? So we choose. We choose to look past the outreach hand. We choose to ignore the silent voice asking for help. We choose to not see the tears behind the eyes waiting to be cried. We are desensitized. Is it us who needs help? With such words felt, the grass is greener on the other side. Home is where the heart is. It's always darkest before the dawn, and only the devil can steal your pride. But what if they lied? What if they hide behind the cliché, pay dues to break rules? Is anyone else confused? But again, it's us who choose. What if you woke up one morning and a man in a badge came to your house and said, your home is no longer yours, it's gone? And not because you did something wrong, like hurt someone or steal something, but because you were trying to reach a life worth loving. I am literally, for the first time in my life, standing between a rock and a hard place. I can physically see misplaced hate, and as I look from face to face, I don't see the so-called waste of space. I see the same thing I saw at six years of age. My people, and what it equaled. And these are not feeble numbers like the half a million people on any given night in these United States who are homeless. And that's just off one night, off one statistic, and that's just what we could document. 
How about over 200,000 of these people are in families? How about 300,422 are individuals just like you? And before you say, you filthy slob, go get a job, how about 44%, half of this entire number have one or more jobs? But in California, it's kind of hard to live. And for some, it's kind of hard to give. So what are we left with? Veterans, mentally ill. How about 25%, a quarter of this entire number are children, kids dreaming the same dream that we did. This cannot be dismissed. This cannot be dismissed. We wish for the hope to be restored that has been taken from us. We have been stripped naked, disposed of, and discarded, and it's all by the supposed lighthearted. All by the people that supposedly want the best for their community. As we stand together for a moment in time, we can accept the stages in front of us or we can accept that ignorance is bliss. We are not this vermin that you think we are. We are not some disease you need to fix. We are not something that makes you sick. We are the wrist behind the fist, holding it up proud, standing. We are holding the fingertips on the idle thrones, or in this case, concrete homes. These are the same people that you call neighbors. These are the same people that you call friends. These are the same people that you call family. It is our job to stand up and speak for those without a voice, to hoist a provocative lyric and let the world know you cannot judge the depth of a person's soul by a bank account or the lack of a home. Thank you. That's called Band-Aid on a Bullet Wound. On September 24th, the Oakland Raiders played the Washington Redskins. Before the game, as has become the norm, there were protests by many of the players. After the game, in the Redskins' locker room, cornerback Josh Norman explained that one reason he was a protester was the existence of tens of thousands of homeless veterans on the streets of America. This did not align with the NFL's glorification of the military in the abstract, with color guards and flyovers at games, and no mention of war or its aftermath. Despite the intense overload of coverage of player protests, Josh Norman's comments were ignored by the media. The NFL, of course, doesn't care about the military. It has given millions of our tax dollars for its unfeeling Pentagon promotions. In August, Donald Trump, who has denounced NFL players and their mothers as sons of bitches, announced an increase of 4,000 troops from the endless war in Afghanistan. This means that many more of our sons and daughters will return to the U.S. either in body bags or physically and mentally scarred, likely candidates for homelessness, while the media drones on about how the players are disrespecting our armed forces. I have a new book out called Love and War, My First 30 Years of Writing. 
You can download a copy absolutely free at loveandwarbook.com. That's loveandwarbook.com. Let me know what you think of it. This is a remix of an article I wrote for Counterpunch. He who controls the past controls the future, wrote George Orwell in 1984. Daniel Wolf doesn't want to control the past, but he does want to paint an accurate picture of it. He does it well in his new book, Grown Up Anger, The Connected Mysteries of Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, and the Calumet Massacre of 1913. As Christmas approached in 1913, the workers had been on strike at CNH in Calumet, Michigan for almost five months. The ladies' auxiliary of the union organized a Christmas party at Italian Hall for the miners' kids. They sang songs and opened presents. Just as a young girl sat down to play the piano, a man pushed open the door and shouted, Fire! The crowd rushed downstairs for the building's one exit. Adults and children fell and piled up on top of each other until, after only a few minutes, 74 of them were dead, 63 of them children. Yet that was just the tip of the iceberg. Between 1880 and 1910, there were a little over 1,000 deaths in the copper mines of the Michigan Upper Peninsula. This compares to 3,705 lynching deaths nationwide in the same period of time. As Daniel Wolf writes, it was like a war, an unseen, below-ground war. That stairwell of crushed humanity at Italian Hall eventually became a song, 1913 Massacre, written by Woody Guthrie and recorded in 1945. The parents, they cried, and the miners, they moaned. See what your greed for money has done. Bob Dylan discovered 1913 Massacre sometime around 1960. He never recorded it, but his first album did contain a tribute to Woody Guthrie called Song to Woody. The melody was taken from 1913 Massacre. At age 13, Daniel Wolfe first encountered Bob Dylan on the radio, the electric sound of Like a Rolling Stone. That led Wolfe back to Dylan's early acoustic work, and somewhere on that journey he found 1913 Massacre on an album by Woody Guthrie's son, Arlo. Wolf says that what first attracted him to Bob Dylan was his anger, which finds its echo in Guthrie's song. Guthrie and Dylan took sides, even though they didn't come from the same background as the Michigan copper miners. Charlie Guthrie, Woody's father, owned 30 farms with hired help and two residences in the new state of Oklahoma, which joined the Union in 1907. Bob Dylan's father was a partner in an electrical appliance store in Hibbing, Minnesota. Bob's first girlfriend said about him, he was from the right side of the tracks, and I was from the wrong side. Guthrie and Dylan both grew up where there was a past and a present of intense unrest, small farmers in Oklahoma, miners in Hibbing. In 1916, there was a mass walkout from the Masabi Iron Range, and it wasn't long before Hibbing was being patrolled by sharpshooters and armored cars. 
but the music's roots go deeper. In 1907, the new state of Oklahoma was based on stolen land, and its southeastern quadrant was known, tellingly, as Little Dixie. The elections that year in Oklahoma featured a populist combination of racism and a phony attack on big business, a framework that still plagues us. See Trump, Donald. By 1937, Woody Guthrie was co-host of a radio show in Los Angeles. Evidently influenced by his Oklahoma upbringing, one day he sang a song on the air called Run, Nigger, Run. Guthrie received a letter of protest from a black listener, and he quickly made an apology. The apology appears to have been sincere. Three years later, Guthrie wrote a song called Hang Knot, Slip Knot, that begins by describing the technique for making a hangman's noose, declares the slave to be his brother, and ends by describing the entire legislative judicial system as a slipknot. Bob Dylan went further a generation later with Only a Pawn in Their Game, a song he wrote in response to the assassination of civil rights leader Medgar Evers in Mississippi in 1963. It's a protest against the shooting but it also questions the standard protest song, Wolf Rights, cutting through the black-and-white conventions of Greenwich Village and the folk world to emerge not far from the idea that racism is a product of the larger economic system. Dylan sang the song at a rally in Greenwood, Mississippi, where violence against the civil rights movement was at a peak. He sang it again for 300,000 people at the March on Washington. The importance of only a pawn in their game can still be seen in the way that poor whites today are almost universally regarded as hopelessly ignorant, if not downright fascist, not to mention being blamed for the election of Donald Trump. The need to move beyond the limits of mere protest is becoming a matter of life and death. Daniel Wolf might be describing Flint or the war in Afghanistan when he writes, Guthrie's song is the story of how the American system kills its own. It describes a deliberate act. Dozens of children are smothered to death because a small group of people own the wealth of the earth, and they'd rather kill than share. As for the music, will another Woody Guthrie or Bob Dylan emerge from the social turmoil of our times? I posed that question to Daniel Wolf. He replied, a next Dylan? Nope. Same way he wasn't the next Guthrie, or Guthrie the next Joe Hill. Times and needs and music change. So will it be some 16-year-old rapper? Some middle-aged troubadour cast adrift of middle-class moorings and putting his or her anger into song? Are there 10,000 people under the radar already doing it? Who knows? But we do know that to navigate the future, we need to understand the past. Daniel Wolf has illuminated an important chunk of it to help guide us on our journey.
the world. Let's finish up with a quote of the week, this time from Angel Tiger, who helped to force the city of Los Angeles to allow residents to grow food in their front yards. She said, It all starts with community, acknowledging that we're all dependent on one another, fostering those relationships more. That's a beautiful way to exist. That's it for now. If you see me on the street, smile back. Well, together we stand, divided we fall. Come on now, people, let's all get on the ball and work together. Come on, come on, let's work together. We're here now, people, because together we will stand every ball.